and that was our chat with Jan Hoiberg. You know, Jan was probably one of the nicest, warmest people I, I got to talk to, and he has such a unique experience that he has such a unique experience, something that, you know, any music fan would, you know, relish because not only was he a fan and spent a lot of time and dedication getting to know the music and putting together a place online for people, he actually got to know some of the folks that made that music, legends like Levon Helm and Garth Hutt. So my first question for you, and I think everybody remembers it, that's a true uh, fan of the band, was what was the first moment or memory that you have that sparked your interest in the band? Um, well, like so many of us, it was uh, seeing The Last Waltz for the first time. Uh, I must have been about 18 years old, saw it in the local cinema in my little hometown in Norway. And, uh, you know, I was totally blown away, like... Uh, seeing Lee Von Helm in, in, in full flight with these guys and then all these like heroes who was coming up there that we had heard about like, you know, Dylan and Neil Young and all that. And the band, they, they weren't really on the radar, you know, you heard them on the radio, but seeing them for the first time, that was like, you know, a, a revelation. And, uh, you know, here, here we are, you know, uh, 40 something year later and <laughs> still at it. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. And, and, now it, it was you 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 found the band through this you you were listening to the music you became a fan but fast forward to around 94 you started or maybe even earlier you started on the dawn of the internet and things like that you started looking around to see if you could find any other fans or any other information about the band tell me a little bit about that because i think a lot of my listeners don't even understand like the internet obviously it hasn't always been there and it hasn't been a resource for anything you want. So what were you trying to find? What did you find, if anything, of that nature? Yeah, you know, I was um, uh, I was probably one of the guys in, in Norway that were, you know, first actually using the internet because I studied computer science and uh, that became a line of work. Uh, and uh, I started using email like in the early 80s. And then then here comes the, the World Wide Web in around 1990. And... Uh, being being such a big fan of the band, you know, the first thing I did when I when I first got a proper web browser was to look for information. There was practically nothing out there. There was quite a few Bob Dylan discussions fo discussion forums, but nothing on the band. So I just decided to put something up, and this was in in '94, so 27 years ago. And uh, it, I mean, this was the time when the internet sort of started growing exponentially. Everybody wanted to go on and. You had all these Dylan fans and band fans that had nowhere else to go except my site. So it, it totally exploded in just like a, a year or two. We, we went from, you know, zero to actually for a couple of years becoming the website in Norway with the most traffic. Wow. And, and then we are actually counting, you know, the newspapers. Remember, this was like when the internet just started. So not mm -hmm. a lot of people had it back home. But we had this massive base of users from all over the world. So... We were we were visible on the national internet traffic statistics for a couple of years, which is quite uh, quite remarkable, actually. And so, did it did it start as more of like an online discussion platform, like a lot of early online internet forums, or did you start collecting information and ca kind of cataloging it like we see with the website today? Yeah, yeah, the latter. Uh, it was not a discussion forum uh, in in the beginning. We added some interactivity after a couple of years. 
at that time, those those things were called guest books. Like mm-hmm. researchers could leave like you know a comment, and then that developed into a discussion forum, and, and it's still there. Um, after all these years, uh, it's actually going to close now in March uh, after 25 years online, because there's no point really anymore. You know, like yeah. everybody's on social media, and uh, you know, 25 years plus is enough. So uh, we're actually going to freeze the site and close down the interactive forum next month. Uh, yeah. But um, yeah, it has mostly been like um, a, a massive online archive with thousands of contributors, like people have sent us long articles, reviews, scans, mm-hmm. videos, all, all this stuff. So the, the archive is going to be preserved online. Right. And, and now, now these days, you know, you can go to Squarespace or any other platform to make your website for you. It's so easy. But back in the 90s, at the dawn of the internet, and and when web browsers became a thing, obviously, websites were built on the basis of you understanding code and actually putting a website together. Uh, with your background in that, was that something that was a challenge, uh, especially when you started getting like a lot of traffic and things? I'm assuming you start have to think about like server space and, and things like that, right? Yeah, well, being a programmer, you know, the the technical part of putting it up and maintaining it is that's, you know, that's my line of work. Uh, uh, but uh, I, I was lucky enough to have my workplace, which is a university college in uh, in, in Norway. Um, uh, there's a faculty there uh, of computer science. That's my workplace. And they actually have hosted uh, this for all these years because we have been using it as a research project as well. There's been several student projects where they have maintained it, programmed it. And we have people studying, you know, the traffic patterns and the social interactions between users. So I've been allowed to have it hosted for free. And uh, we have the kind of technology where, you know, server space and bandwidth is not a problem at all. It blew up, you said. It started really, you know, getting a lot of traffic and things like that. So did that mean, like, did you not promote it at all? Uh, did it just kind of spread word of mouth through, like, individuals or through email and things like that? What, what did, was there any promotion on your part? You know, we had these, like, discussion groups, news groups, they were called back then. Um, so people started posting, you know, links there. And, uh, you know, it, it just, like, spread like everything does on the Internet. So no... No promotion. It's like a total non-commercial project. Now that the the website's been running for so long, are there any was there any challenges at the beginning, during the middle, or even now uh, with kind of running and keeping a website like this up? Um, the main challenge is has probably been connected to copyright problems because it's. Um, you know, it's um, how how to say this. We have tried to be very careful, but I mean, a lot of this stuff is is public domain, like album covers and short sound samples and that. But uh, I can tell you the story about the first time when I encountered Elliot Landy, the band's uh, famous photographer. You know, he called me in my office and gave me a mouthful back in '97, I think, for having spread all these photos online. Um, so you know, it's been problems like that. Luckily, Ellen to me, we ended up friends, and I did promotion for him, and uh, we've stayed in touch for all these years. He's a wonderful guy, by the way. Um, but I mean, the problem has mostly been the time that it takes. I do have a full job and a family on the side as well. So uh, at times, it was a lot of work uh, to maintain it and put in all this information. But it's been really rewarding, really rewarding. With somebody like Elliot, uh, maybe originally calling you in anger, but obviously you becoming friends with him. Did other people, either from the band's ecosystem or themselves, reach out to you in those early days at all? 
Yes, they did. Um, you know, they the band came back came back in '93 with the Jericho album, and uh, this site started uh, in '94, and then they came with um, their um, their second '90s album, High on the Hog, in '96. And then, then I was contacted by the band's management, and by 1999 or '98, when they released their final album, Jubilation, we were actually accepted as their official website and they printed the address on, on the cover and they gave me credit, you know, on the, on the album cover, etc. So, so yeah, we, we had really good contacts with them. And um, <clears throat> during that period, I started going to, to Woodstock regularly uh, and to, to the States to meet the guys. Um, I met Levon for the first time in December of 1999. And then I was back for Rick Danko's funeral in December. Met Garth in London in '98, and um, I, well, I, I briefly met Danko before that because you know he he had a, a history of playing with Jonas Fjeld from Norway and Eric mm-hmm. Anderson in a trio. So, but uh, yeah, uh, the official management and uh, also the the guys, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to to spend time with them, uh, and I t- did consider leave on a friend. And Garth Hudson is still mm-hmm. is, and his wife Maud, they are still friends of me and my wife. Um, so uh, it's you can definitely say that we've we've been in touch with them uh, over over the years. Um, I have to mention, do you know who who Barbara O'Brien is? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she, I mean, she, she, she basically rebuilt Levon's career after the after the illness, you know, and helped him with the rambles. And through her, you know, we we got to go to quite a few rambles, and those were absolutely wonderful experiences. You know, when Levon's singing voice came came back just after the the turn of the millennium, you know, you should have been there. Those were magic. Those were magical moments. What was it like for you? Now you you know you become a fan. Uh, you, you see the last ball at 18 and, and you build this website and now essentially through the power of the internet and building this website, you actually get to meet these folks, but not only meet these folks, you become friends with them. What was it like that first time you entering Woodstock after, you know, building this website and becoming this fan? The first time was quite, I mean, I loved Woodstock, you know, the area of the, the first time I came up there, it's quite similar to where I grew up in Norway, actually, you know, with the woods and the mountains and all that. But uh, meeting Levon Helm for the first time through his road manager, a guy called Butch Denner, who was nice enough to connect us. Um, that's the only time in my life where I've been starstruck and like to- totally because, you know, being a fan of Levon for all these years and suddenly there, there the man was, you know you know, handing out a bottle of Coke and, you know, being friendly. And uh, that was um, real strange, but it, I mean, it took like just a couple of minutes, you know, and uh, because he was so relaxed and nice. But yes, in the beginning, it was a bit overwhelming. And that's because, you know, uh, coming from where I come from, you know, and never have been, you know, been around stars or like world famous people like that. It was a bit overwhelming. I called him like Mr. Helm and it's an honor and started <laughs> talking like that, you know. Yeah. And he goes, ah, I called me Levon, you know. That's that's interesting. And and but on the on the other side, I think you briefly mentioned there too, attending somebody like Rick Danko's funeral. I'm a, I'm assuming, you know, I've read about it, I've talked to people about it, I've seen some things about it, but what was it like being in that church that day? Uh, there's lots of stories that swirl around, both positive and negative, about certain things there. But like, what was it like being in there with the folks? A lot of folks that were family and 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 lifelong friends, and seeing him being eulogized up there. Like, what was that like from your perspective? Um, the funeral, I don't can't really tell you much about, but. Uh, 
during those same days, you know, there, there were this um, Rick Danko Memorial concert that was at the Beersville Theater, where all his friends and family came. And there were so many fans that, you know, the people had to stand outside to put up a PA speaker system outside. Robbie was there. Garth was there. Levon stopped by, saw that a certain other band member was there and went back. But, you know, it's, it was just to see the outpouring of love, you know, and all these people... Um, it was it was fantastic is a wrong word because it, it was really sad but i mean still at the same time it was incredibly beautiful mm -hmm. uh, to see all that love being poured out for for rick and uh you know uh, it's uh it's just a pity that i that i never got to to know him better because i i have spoken quite a lot to his uh, publicist carol caffin mm -hmm. i don't know if you are familiar with her and uh and she, uh, you know, she paints this picture of such such a beautiful, uh, nice guy, uh, Ricky. And uh, well, I mean, being at his funeral was uh, was special. But uh, I have to tell you that um, I never dared tell my wife what it actually did cost me to buy those tickets on the spur of the moment <laughs> and go to Woodstock. Yeah, <laughs> you know, this was this was late nineties, and you know the transatlantic flights weren't exactly cheap, and not if you ordered them for the next day. So, mm -hmm. but it was it was it was a you know one of this one of those things that you'll never forget. Now, just going back a little bit to the to the website portion, being home of of this massive aggregate of information and people thousands of people sending information in. Uh, obviously, you've become somewhat of an expert. You're seeing a lot of this. You know a lot about the details. You you've you've talked to these guys as well. What's one piece of information that you've learned over all of these years that have surprised you the most? I would probably say um, Garth Hudson's um, <clears throat> thoughts about musical education, uh, because he has been speaking to, to me in depth about uh, I mean, me being a college guy, how we would have liked to, to start this uh, his own line of musical education. And I'm not educated within this to actually understand exactly, you know, uh, the depth of what he was telling me, but, uh, you know, this untraditional way of thinking about teaching people music and how to appreciate music and play music. That was probably one of the biggest surprises, uh, you know, to, to, to learn that Garth Hudson, you know, uh, actually, uh, had uh, I mean we all know that he was paid to be their music teacher right. you know when they were the Hawks but actually I mean he was inside you know this music teacher who had really deep thoughts about how to how to teach kids uh, music and it's a pity that uh, that it didn't happen um, he uh, I mean he had his own like way of, of, of writing music that he tried to explain to me yeah etc et, et but yeah but prob probably that you know the and also then, I don't know, you, you met Garth, right? You talked yep. to him, yeah? Uh, yeah. And he's, I mean, he's, uh, he's constructed differently, you know? It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's so interesting to talk to that guy, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, I think, you know what? To be completely honest, I, I do remember him telling me a lot about this. This is something that he was incredibly passionate about, uh, musical education. And I believe I'll have to go back and check the uh, the audio. I think he mentions your name at one point as well about collaborating to make this thing. And this was maybe four years ago, the last time I, I sat down with him. But yeah, he was extremely passionate about that. He wanted he definitely wanted to talk about that. So that that's that's incredibly interesting. 
Um, now, I, I, you know, we, we talked about it already, you going over and meeting these guys. But um, on that, most of these guys, except for Levon, of course, are, are from Canada, which always is an interesting point for a lot of folks because they've been called the forefathers of Americana music, which is super ironic because they're Canadians, et cetera, et cetera. And people have explored that. But they do come from a lot of these rural areas of of southern Ontario, or in Robbie's case, uh, he grew up right in Toronto. Um, you came to Canada uh, in 99, from what I've gathered online, and you visited some of the places that these guys grew up in. Um, now, you never met Richard. Uh, he passed, uh, unfortunately. But what was it like visiting Stratford and visiting uh, his grave and other things? There was the bench there at that point, the bench uh, by the river? No, I think that came later. Um, yeah. Well, visiting Richard's grave was actually the closest I've been in my life to religious experience. And uh, the story is quite weird because, I mean, if you've been to that cemetery, you know that it's it's quite big. You can actually drive around in it. And me and this English friend of mine, we came there. Uh, we came into Stratford quite late. Uh, so uh, we just, you know, found the cemetery. It was getting dark. We had no idea where his grave was. We just <laughs> drove around and we were saying, you know, we'll have to wait until tomorrow. And then, you know, suddenly I just stopped the car and I said, no, let's check over there. And I walked up and I, I stepped directly onto Richard's grave. Yeah. And this is the, this is the truth. I mean, uh, I even have a witness in England. And uh, we both had, you know, chills down our spines then, you know. And then we did the ritual thing, you know, had a had a little Grand Marnier and, you know, uh, thought about Richard. But um, apart from that, you know, I've, I've been uh, stopping by, you know, Garth's uh, Garth, uh, home, home place. And we've been down to, to Simcoe and on Toronto. And also been lucky enough to spend time with Lee von Helm in, down in Arkansas, which was also amazing. So tell me a little bit about going down to Arkansas. I know I know a lot of folks uh, go down there to to where he's from and find it incredibly interesting. Obviously, the southern parts of America are extremely uh, cultured, have a have a rich history, both negative and positive. Um, and and a lot of what Levon is and he embodies is is coming out of coming out of the South uh, and kind of really grappling with both those the history and, and, and everything like that. Uh, and he talks about it quite a bit and it, it comes out in a lot of the songwriting and, and a lot of the band songs, whether it's W.S. Walcott or the night they drove old Dixie down and things like that. Right. What was it like going down to his home with him? Um, you know, I, I lived in the South for a year. I lived in Texas from 93 to 94. Um, so I was, you know, familiar with the, with the, the American South, but I did live in Austin, which is, you know, more of a college town, but, uh, I have seen those, those, you know, those not so nice sides of, of the South, uh, you know, uh, racism and all that, that also existed in Texas. Uh, so when we went down there in, that was in two, two, 2002, me and this English friend of mine. Um, we uh, were pleasantly surprised, you know, when we came into into Levon Town and we we happened by chance actually to meet Levon. We didn't even know he was there, but he took us around, you know, and showed us uh, where we grew up and the high school in Marvel. And he took us to Bubba's Blues Corner and bought us caps and records. Man, it was amazing. But uh, um, I think that you know Levon, he. I didn't know him that well, but I mean, the impression that he gave to me during that trip was that in his, in his mind, you know, racism wasn't like, you know, it wasn't, it, it wasn't there for him because he, I mean, he 
we 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 spoke to this like you know blues musicians and uh, it just wasn't an issue mm. um but it was really nice to see how much they appreciate him down there like when we came driving into into west helena uh for for the first time the first uh, thing you see is like this big mural with Lebon painted on it um and then you know we <laughs> We stopped and walked up Cherry Street, which is the main street in West Helena. And we see the Gist Music Store, uh, which is where Levon bought his first guitar. You know, it's, it's in his autobiography. So wow. we walk in there and there's like Mr. Morris Gist, you know, the guy who owns oh, the shop is still there in his 80s. And <laughs> we ask him, uh, you know, are you really the guy that, you know, sold Levon Helm's first guitar? Oh, yeah, no. And he started telling the stories. And then he goes, by the way, you know, would you guys like to see Levon? Yeah, well, you know, and then it, it turns out that he was there at the same days that we were there, you know, so we took him to this motel and there was Leon Helm with C.W. Gatlin and Bubba, these guys, and here we go on a sightseeing trip, you know, and next couple of days we're up north in Arkansas with Leon and the Cape Brothers because they're playing gigs around there. Right. <laughs> you know. What do you think, like everybody that's that's met Levon um, really talks about his personality, his warmth, his charisma, uh, his southern charm. What was, is that really what it is? Is is he like that? Or what was it about Levon Helm that made people gravitate towards him, you think? I didn't know Levon that well. You know, we've we, we spent time and I've been at his home, both uh, at the Rambles and, you know, backstage and around his kitchen table talking to him. But um, I think that what's, it's basically that he's, he's the real thing, you know, and it's like, that's just, that can't be discussed. You know, it's not like... Uh, like somebody who tries to pretend or like, you know, a lot of these posers that you find in music, he's just <laughs> a real thing. And he has it in his, I mean, he has it in his spine. He grew up with the, the music of his dad, you know, in the cotton fields and uh, been playing since he was just a kid. Um, so, no, I mean, he, he was the real thing. And uh, of course, I mean, when people saw Levon in his prime, you know, live, it's, uh, it's just like nothing else. You know? Yeah, you can even, you can, feel it through the screen whether it's the last waltz or hear it through your headphones when you're listening to something like rock of ages there's such a feral energy and like such a good way he's just he's just a performer like it just he lives to perform um now with 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 this and you you being a fan of, of the music and things like that what do you think the calling card is uh, for the band? They have, you know, they've never been the most commercially relevant or successful band, but they have a very dedicated uh, fan base. We're in it. What do you think it is about the music that connects with people? Because, uh, you know, I'm a Canadian. I guess I can make that connection because these these folks grew up where where I grew up. Um, but they have fans all around the globe. They had a really dedicated base in Japan. And, and you're in Norway. Like, what is it about the music you think that makes them so unique? Oh, huh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, uh, the songwriting is obviously one thing, uh, even though they, they do talk a lot about, you know, American culture and, uh, and uh, the songs about the South. Uh, it's still something about Robertson's songwriting that uh, I think has a universal appeal. Um, and then he dares to do stuff like The Wait, you know, with the... Uh, with this, uh, these subtle messages and these this lyrics that, you know, makes makes you wonder what's, what is this all about? And then when you investigate, there are all these stories behind it. Uh, so I think that's got like a universal appeal. Uh, and I mean, of course, the, the, the musical talent and I mean, 
those three voices uh, honed after all those years on the road and then getting into proper studio and, you know, here, here comes music from Big Pink. Um, I think that's, you know, the, the originality as well, because there was nothing like it. And I don't think there will ever be anything like just like it. Yeah, no, I keep on hunting for it. I keep on hunting for a group or an artist that gives me the same feeling that the band does, and, and I can't find it because it's uh, so unique. Um, whether it's, like you said, the three voices, the extreme musical talent, just Garth Hudson alone, you could you could investigate his his understanding of music and his playing on those records for, for years, or whether it's Robbie Robertson writing a song, or especially early on, a Richard Manuel song as well. There's such poetic nature in that as, as well. Speaking of songs and things like that, uh, it's kind of a two-parter. Uh, I find for myself it grows and it changes, but what was that original song that really latched you onto the group? And, and now all these years later, what's a song you find yourself revisiting a lot? That's hard to say, actually. I mean, the, the, the first song that came on the radar was actually The Night the Drove All Dixie Down. Uh, <laughs> To be honest, I had just, you know, like as a kid, I'd heard Joanne Baez's version. I didn't like that much, but seeing that <laughs> in the last waltz, uh, that, uh, you know, that's, that's probably the one that I get back to a lot, uh, that live version. And also, you know, the, the staple singers, like maybe staples with, with Levon Enrique. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also one that I get back to all the time, but also some, some of the newer stuff, uh, Levon's version of of, uh, of Steve Earle's Mount, The Mountain. That's mm-hmm. that's, mesmer, that's mesmerizing stuff, you know. It's uh, it's really really good. Uh, and um, yeah, I guess th- those would be the the three songs that uh, that that come to mind first. The the three versions and uh, um, you know I'd, I just wish that I had uh, had been able to to uh, to meet Mavis Staples. You seen the documentary about Mavis, where she talks about Levon? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The love she has for Levon, I, I wasn't really aware of that until a couple of years ago. That that she was so close with him, uh, and really appreciated him so much. Uh, I was at this gig in New York when I lived there six or seven years ago, and uh, I was given audience like allow us to go backstage and meet Mavis, and then something happened, so it you know it didn't. The only thing I got was to give her one of those love for Levon. Keyboards. Oh yeah, that was it. Yeah, so <laughs> wish that I really could have exchanged a few words with her about, mm-hmm. about that because that's, I mean, talk about religious experience. You know, that's that moment there in the last waltz on that soundstage. Wow. Yeah, yeah, no, and and if you if you listen to a lot of the Staples uh, records, you can very clearly see kind of the parallels that the band uh, took in terms of an influence uh, from from that group, and and that's that's remarkable. Uh, and obviously, the last waltz is a whole paying tribute to a lot of a lot of the folks, including somebody like Muddy Waters, who I I just got to um, talk about on my my recent episode about when he came down to Woodstock and did the Woodstock album with you know Henry Glover and Levon and stuff. It's just the not only are they taking influences from these folks, but they seem to con- create genuine connections with a lot of them after the fact too, which is just uh, just remarkable. But you mentioned some of the the newer material too, and I always love talking to people about some of the newer material. Uh, it's not as mentioned as much, right? Uh, but Levon had those strings, string of albums before he passed at one Grammys, and they're chock full of amazing music. Now, somebody who knew him a little bit and, and knew a lot of folks around him 
What was what was it like when Levon Helmer re was releasing these albums after all these years as a solo artist, and they were just chock full of these amazing tracks? Um, it was uh, just you know when when he came back after his uh, after he lost his voice, you know, when he was really ill, and he came back uh, at the beginning of the millennium uh, with the Dirt Farmer album. Uh, so many people, including me, you know, we were, we were so surprised that he was actually able to do these things. And as I told you, that song, The Mountain, Steve, is the early version, you know, the, the version that he does. So that is, I think, is one of the strongest things that he ever, ever did. And, uh, you know, seem, I think he actually won Grammys for all his three, for all his work. Yeah, yeah, yeah he did. Uh, and getting, you know, the American Music Awards and that stuff. Uh, it was just so good to see him get that, you know, lap of honor, you know, uh, mm -hmm. experiencing all this before he passed. Uh, and to all those people who had been working with him and helping him along the way, especially people like, uh, you know, Barbara, O'Brien, Butchery Denner, um, all these people that worked at Levon Helm Studios. And most of them worked, you know, without, uh, well, they, they did it out all over Levon, you know, like yeah. mostly volunteers that, yeah. To watch all that was, that was wonderful. Around that time, too, there was a documentary that came out, uh, Ain't In It For My Health. A lot of people don't know about it. I talked to a bunch of people. I'm like, have you, have you seen that documentary? They're like, what, what documentary is that? Obviously, people watch uh, The Last Waltz, and, and now you have Once We're Brothers, which is uh, more of the, the, Robbie, the Robbie's uh, documentary about his early childhood and then going into the band. Um, now, with Ain't In It For My Health, uh, it, it's a lot different than and than something like Once for Brothers. You're you're catching an an icon, a living legend, uh, towards what we now know is the end of his life, and you see some of the struggles, you see some of the frustrations, you see some of the joys and triumphs. Um, what was it like for you being around in in this in this fan base? when that movie uh, came out, was it well received? I, I, this was predates me a little bit. I wasn't around as a fan at that point. Well, I, I have seen it and I thought it was a very strong movie. Um, I think the reactions were mixed, you know, I think some people thought like, you know, did they really have to do this? Because as you say, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's honest, maybe a bit too honest at times. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, so I, I was a bit, first time I saw it, I was a bit, I mean, I knew about a lot of the stuff that was going on, but seeing it up close in, the, you know, a documentary like that, that was, that was a bit difficult, actually. But uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm thankful that they did it. It's, it's a really good document of what, uh, how things really were, you know, also the anger and the, the not so nice side of things. Yeah, of course. And now comparing that, you know, years later, but now you have uh, Once Were Brothers come out, and that's an interesting document too because again every time something like this comes out there's always a renewed interest which i think is always a positive thing right because you have these lasting documents like the last waltz that have become part of people's rituals every thanksgiving american thanksgiving watching it or or things like that but anytime you get a new re-release of an album or a new documentary like once we're brothers that's super splashy with martin scorsese and ron howard uh, you bring a lot of new fans in or you get a lot of people discussing the band again what was what was uh, your reaction to the film what did you really like about it and things like that i think it was a brilliant piece of work um 
I know a lot of people say that, you know, it's uh, it's Robert Robertson's view on things, but uh, of course it is because, I mean, it's based on his autobiography, so mm-hmm. that's not very surprising. But I think it was really well done. And um, I mean, as you mentioned, I'm one of those guys that knows probably a bit too much about the details about the history, you know, so there, yeah. there, there weren't many surprises there for me, but uh, I am really glad that, you know, all this material was brought out to 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 the rest of the world to see you know because it's an amazing story and i think they they did a really good job and uh you know it was it was quite good actually to watch the final credits and see your name flash over there yeah. you know uh, <laughs> find the recognition after all those years <laughs> <laughs> so with that you know we were talking about these two documentaries and things like that you you know you you obviously didn't make a big splashy hollywood film but you are just as important and as, as impactful in the legacy of the band how does it feel these many years later having had such an impact and helping push forward the legacy of a group like this it's um i'm really glad that i made the decision 27 years ago to start this because it's been you know life changing uh uh also on personal level, uh, but it's been incredibly rewarding. Wherever I go in the world now, I have people that I can contact, you know, if I go to mm-hmm. Japan or wherever, there are always people in the network. You you get this amazing root system and that's probably the best reward. Um, so, um, for me, I mean, me personally, I feel more like my, my role has been to be like an editor because, uh, most of the material comes from other sources you know i've been compiling this and archiving it and making it run uh so if i if i really should mention somebody who's made incredibly contribution to the site it must be this uh, guy from uh, the uk called peter viney he's writing all these right. written all these long articles about their songs and uh you know, analyzing lyrics and like, now when the Stage Fright 50th anniversary edition came out, he has published this really long uh, work about it, you know, and he's he's a, he's a bit of a scholar, you know, but uh, people like him who put in hours and hours and create original work for us to publish, um, that's been that's been amazing. And uh, we also have people like, you know, John Shelley, who, who gives us access to his stuff. Um, yeah, so... And, my role in it that um you know I, i'm just happy that i you know that i started it and i speak you know it's been been uh, so rewarding over all these years i just want to thank you personally uh you mentioned peter uh i use a lot of peter's information on the show it's a history show so i i source everybody you know i put some of my own thoughts into it but a lot of it's sourcing things and putting it into an audio format for people to listen to on their you know their drive to work and things like that and things like peter and other resources on your website i use it daily when writing the show additionally uh anytime somebody asks me if where can i learn more about the band yeah i, I throw out the biographies and things like that but i was like go to this website this is a phenomenal resource you can find anything you can find the most little obscure thing to really like uh, you know, spark your interest. So on a personal note, I want to thank you for, for doing that. Uh, but just to, just to wrap up here, we talked about favorite song. Now they have a bunch of albums too. What's, what's one of the albums that you come back to often, uh, that you, that you like as a, as a full complete work, what's your favorite? Uh, music from Big Pink. Uh, yeah. because you know, the, the freshness, the originality, you know, these guys weren't stars, you know, they were, they were struggling and trying for something new and you can actually hear that. Uh, I mean, some of the basement tape stuff is excellent too, but 
then they're not I feel they're not really trying, you know, they're just experimenting yeah. and having fun. Whereas you can tell that music from Big Pink, that was a serious effort, you know, mm-hmm. you know, that was like, you know, this time we're really going for it. And and you can hear that, uh, I think, especially in Richard Manuel's songwriting and, and singing yeah. there, it uh, gets to me every time I listen to it. Definitely the music from Big Pink. Yeah, there's such an innocence to it and not innocence as like that they're naive, but innocence in terms of like, writing an album and bringing it to the world and not understanding necessarily then why would they the impact that would have and the collaborative nature of it and the setting and the mythos around everything about being hidden up in a mountain there's just something that's so eternal about it that you can return to um but um i'll I'll leave the floor to you Uh, jan what if is there anything that we didn't talk about in the interview or anything you'd like to mention for the audience here before we uh, leave you off here you know, when I when I think about the band side and, you know, my, it's, it's been such a big part of my life, you know, I'm, I, I think the, the whole trip has been amazing because, I mean, me, like, started working with the internet when I was in my early 20s, you know, and then still 40 years later, still, you know, having the internet as my main, uh, my main work tool uh, and how the, these things have changed over the years. Um, uh, and then being able to maintain a project like this for you know 27 years it's it's just amazing and then i have you know i have i have this kid he's actually i call him a kid but he's actually older than you now uh, <laughs> uh, he's a musician and a producer he lives in la you know and uh, i like to look at that as kind of an extension of this you know his mm-hmm. his boring old college professor dad you know uh, had a musical interest that maybe sparked something in him and he's actually making making a nice career for himself in uh, in in Los Angeles like you know he's well, well yeah I, I i can brag because it's about him you know he's, he's like, <laughs> i mean i mean he's like songwriter and producer for Kanye West you know those kind of people so that's amazing it's uh, yeah it is actually it is amazing so uh, i hope to move there soon you know and uh, he can be my retirement fund yeah yeah that's what i'm talking about uh, no, thank you again. Uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, I know our audience will really glean some amazing uh, information from this. And, and if they haven't already, come up, check out this great archive, the Wikipedia of the band uh, online. Thanks. that was our chat with Jan Hoiberg. You know, Jan was probably one of the nicest, warmest people I, I got to talk to. And he has such a unique experience. Something that, you know, any music fan would, you know, relish. Because not only was he a fan and spent a lot of time and dedication getting to know the music and putting together a place online for people. He actually got to know some of the folks that made that music. Legends like Levon Helm and Garth Hudson and Rick Danko. So, you know, hearing his story and how he built the website was uh, very cool. And again, I want to thank Jan myself. Just the website has been a great resource for me when researching this show and curating a lot of the things that I look to when putting that pen to paper and drafting out an episode. So if, if you like this, definitely go and check some of our other interviews out. We've done ones with uh, greats like Elliot Landy author Sandra Tuzzi, uh, director Daniel Rohr, and, and many, many more, as well as our other episodes of the show, the main show. You can find us on social media online at The Band Podcast. We have a particularly active 
Instagram account. We have a great Facebook group if you type in The Band Podcast. And you can follow along on any social media platform. Consider donating to the show to help make it. Uh, We have a great number of patrons already. And we want to continue to grow that number. You can go over to patreon.com slash thebandahistory. There's a couple different tiers that you can pick from. And there's perks including early access, blog posts, and a bunch of other cool, fun little things. So that was it for this week for the Band of History. We really hope you enjoyed it, and we'll catch you on the next one. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.